don't cry You can rely on me, honey Welcome, everyone, to episode 25 of the AXPX Podcast. I am your host, Sean DeRager, and with me, as always, Joey Avalos. Yes, I am. I'm here. Well, I, I, pulled, I pulled through on one of my promises, and actually this show, we actually have someone that I said we'll have. So, <laughs> the next I was episode. hoping it was like Hera. Come on. <laughs> I know, right? I know that's what I'm in for. So, uh, on... on on the uh, on the podcast, we got Trip Fuller. So what's up, man? Oh, this, it's a good morning. It's Saturday, and I, I'm on my fifth cup of coffee because I needed to bring my A game since this is a philosophy podcast. <laughs> well, this is armchair philosopher, so you don't really yeah. have to bring much of an A game. Oh, I, no, no, you no know, that's the best kind. Maybe a C game. I was uh, a, you know. You really have not hung out with uh, professional <laughs> philosophers. I have not, no. Oh, <laughs> not yet. And the I'm worst st- are the analytic ones. <laughs> They were like, well, you know, philosophy used to talk about meaning, life, death, the depths of existence, art, beauty, justice. Now it's like math problems. Oh, God, forget that. Oh. See, I was a D student in math and maybe a C student, so I'm not really expecting much right now. Numbers are oppressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tripp uh, is the host of a podcast, Homebrew Christianity. And uh, within that kind of circle of podcasts, you also have like theology, theology nerd throwdown, right? Is that kind of – you guys yeah. – Tell us a little bit about the, the podcast you got going. Well, Homebrewed Christianity is the first one we started. Um, I guess I started it almost six years ago or something like that. Um, and uh, it was really, uh, comes out of a pub group at a church I was working at right out of Divinity School. And um, I liked getting together and talking about ideas a lot like your uh, skeptic group that you're starting without the vows. Um, <laughs> and. And and I, but I hated being like the minister who's supposed to be smart showing up and talking for forty minutes. Right. Then you finally get to get to what people find interesting. Right. So my thought was, I'm a nerd. I read three hundred page books about the historical Jesus or the problem of evil and that kind of thing. I'll read them, interview the author, then send the audio file. This is before I realized a podcast existed. I'll send the audio file to all my um, uh, my pub group at church. They'll listen to it and email me questions. So I just had a big fishbowl cool. that I printed out all their questions in, put it in the little private room at Foothills Brewing Company in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, best brewery in North Carolina, delicious IPA. Anyway, mm. um, Foothills, they also have a, 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 a beer called Sexual Chocolate. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It's religious. Um, <laughs> so, uh, And then I had a sign that's on, that I put on the walls, like a glass wall in a private room that said, one good God question equals free pint. And so the idea was that we would all be having a conversation around the topic of the book that the author was there, like we did John Dominique Cross and or Brian McLaren or Diana Butler Bass, that kind of thing. And then anyone could come in and drop their question in, and we could switch topics. So that was so much fun that then friends of mine who were ministers at other churches were like, oh, can I have those MP3s? Then we can do the same thing. And uh, then my computer nerd friend said, excuse me, <laughs> um, did you know that you can syndicate MP3 files? It's called podcasting. And uh, I hadn't even joined Facebook then because I was protesting technology. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I kind of backed into doing that. And the whole idea was you should brew your own faith as opposed to just learn to call chilled theological urine uh, <laughs> theology 
is really you know you should you should brew your own with the best ingredients. So we interview people of all different types of ideas and uh, places and and traditions, and you brew your own. And then the theology nerd throwdown podcast is me and my buddy Bo. He's a, a PhD in practical theology, um, uh, really talking about whatever people call in, and they, they, you know like we have a little speak pipe. That's a little button you push. They leave a message. It's an MP3. We listen to them. It's like a Q&A show for theology nerds. Cool. And uh, we talk about whatever comes up there. Very cool. Yeah, I I, uh, I discovered you guys' podcast, I think, when I was, uh, gosh, was it three years ago? When I was trying to find as many uh, as many podcasts as I can find that were just different from the norm evangelical like uh, surroundings that I was in. Uh-huh. So I discovered you guys a few years ago, and uh, and uh, my my problem with podcasts is I have so many that I'm subscribed to I can never keep up. So. Ah, see, I that's why I really like the Stitcher app. Uh huh. Because then you don't have to organize it; it's always just the most recent one. Nice. That's what I should do because I get I get uh, I get overwhelmed. <laughs> what speed do you listen to? I listen to podcasts at double or triple speed. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I saw Same that. I, I saw that feature. I was like that that. You know, maybe I should do that. Yeah, it's, it's you just do it for a week, and do it first on ones that are comedy ones or something that you don't yeah. have to think hard, and then all of a sudden, you're just you're just sitting there listening to, the, you know. I'm worried I might start talking really I am fast. A double speed philosopher. <laughs> I already have I already have trouble slowing down and pronouncing my words properly, so I don't know if I do that. I might just start just chatterboxing way fast. I don't know. We'll see. I'll give it a shot. Give it a shot. Well, um, I wanted to have you on trip because uh, a few weeks ago I had uh, I went to uh, the Brea Community uh, Brea Congregational. Oh crap! I already forgot the the Brea Congregational United y- Church. Of Christ. Yes, <laughs> I need maybe I need some more coffee right now. Uh, I went there and uh, speaking with the pastors, uh, they had brought up process uh, theo- theology, and I found that pretty fascinating that that term process theology. So, and then I heard your, um, your, your podcast with Greg Horton. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I really enjoyed that podcast. And, uh, I think, I believe you brought up process theology there or, or somebody mentioned that you, you are all, you are into process theology. So, um, I figured, yeah, man, we gotta get trip podcast, on the show. That podcast was like, I don't know, an hour and 20 minutes of five hours of audio. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I don't ever remember exactly what parts got in, mm-hmm. um, but it, it definitely did not involve any of the initial lecture. It was pretty cool. It was like, I don't know, 45 people listening to the podcast in Oklahoma City, rented some, like, uh, little hipster art studio, and and a, a brewer made my beer recipe, and then we showed up, and I, like, lectured, then I did like a mini singer-songwriter concert, and then Greg and I talked. Nice. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a really good uh, podcast. I'm really uh... did did you guys change venue w- with part of the podcast too? Because I felt like like half oh, yeah, of it seemed so half of Greg... it seemed live audience, and the other half seemed a little more uh, you know a little more. Um... Yeah, the so the Greg Greg was one of the people that I first when I when I first found out about podcasting was when he and uh Jay Kelly 
were running this uh, podcast network called The Wired Parish. They had Lynn Sweet on there. They had some philosophy and culture podcasts. And it was a like a premium podcast network where you would uh, you know, pay like $10 a month and you got eight different podcasts every week and by some really cool people done professionally like in a recording studio and hmm. stuff. And uh, they had one called The Parish, which is also the name of Greg Horton's blog. And that was before he got like excommunicated by this emergent Nazarene church. Um, and I'm pretty sure that like smoking a hookah was involved in there. <laughs> I mean, I know that's bad for <laughs> Nazarenes don't drink or smoke. Like even the cool ones like uh, Tom Ord. Um, the butch, which I think having a Nazarene around is good. That way you always have a DD. And, <laughs> uh, and you don't have to like, you know, take turns. But uh, so Greg, I had, you know, he was like this person online that existed and I loved his blog. And so I've just been a fan of his. And we are like one step away. We have a bunch of mutual friends who always said, you know what? I can't wait to finally have you and Greg together because y'all have commented on blogs together and blah, 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 blah. You two both are like nerds who don't take arguing personal and actually enjoy it. Uh -huh. So um, when this whole thing was going on and, and they arranged it in Oklahoma City, I was like, look, okay, well, here's what I really want is I want you to tell Greg Horton to interview me and like to, you know, not even worry about making me uncomfortable. Uh -huh. Because getting, um, getting a hard, giving him giving me a hard time will be like a big hug from my little bromance with him online, which everyone should go read his blog. It's great. Cool. So, uh, yeah, so he had journeyed out of the faith um, over a lot of issues. And I've just always respected him as a, as a blogger and a critical thinker. So it was, it was a blast. The second half of the podcast of he and I talking was um, like, I don't know, two nights later or something. Mm -hmm. We had, uh, um, well, you know, after talking four hours the first day uh, at that, that evening, by the time he and I started our Q&A thing, it was late and liquefied. And uh, um, so we were ended up hanging out and I was like, all right, I want to keep recording because, you, you know, people there were not uh, the people in the room were like homebrew Christianity fan uh -huh. people uh -huh. so they they were not as I don't think as inclined to listen to like slow parsing of things right and, and so I was like hey let's just hang out again so that second time was in uh, one a Southern Baptist minister's garage um, oh. so there's like four or five of us with cigars nice. and, and sweet tea of course that's of what course. It was. Sweet tea is amazing. Um, huh. I uh, I that the second half of that podcast I really liked just because it was a more intimate. You you can tell like you can tell it was more of an intimate setting, and the the responses and questions just seemed to um, just kind of gel. I think a little more. Um, so it was a good podcast, man. I, re I recommend everyone check out that that episode of uh, it's on it's on you guys' uh, podcast feed, right? In Homebrew Christianity. Oh yeah, well clearly they should check out every episode. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but honestly, I don't remember exactly what all we talked yeah. about. No, it was so, good. So I mean, we can start wherever you want, topic wise. <laughs> well, <or laughs> I guess I guess for the first part here, um, we can dive into kind of what I want is kind of a like a layman's terms, kind of you know 
what is process theology is what I what I want kind of for the second half we can dive into that but I kind of want to spend the first part here just getting to know you a little bit kind of your background uh, uh, how you came into Christianity and how you uh, got involved and interested in more of a kind of a liberal theology like process theology we can start there if you want okay um so I'm I grew up in North Carolina I'm a uh, uh, a, a church planters kid. Um, my my mom is in education. My dad's a minister, so it's like a TK and a PK. Right. Um, and and we were uh, so you know if you're a minister's kid, you're always at a church your parents work at. So yeah. you only have one minister you really know know. And um, so I ended up luckily having a dad that I respected and. Um, parents who modeled a much more open and embracing version of our kind of uh, theology. So, like, you know, my dad just never worked at churches where women weren't in leadership or that you didn't do stuff with uh, churches that, you know, the African-American churches mm -hmm. nearby. In the South, you know, those are those were big issues. And early on, I, um, I helped my dad when I was, like, in middle school playing music for this... Uh, uh, this uh, program he started called the Baptist AIDS Partnership of North Carolina. So twice a year, people with HIV AIDS and their live-in caretakers would go, we would host these spiritual retreats for them, encouragement, help them find public assistance, all those, I mean, like a way to basically holistically help them and let them escape and enjoy getting to know their caretaker versus, you know, uh, the, their kind of caretaker just, uh, just doing the, the day-to-day -day routine kind yeah. of stuff. Well, I mean, if you do that, and twice a year you're with transvestites and and, and people of all sorts that you know end up with HIV/AIDS for you know pretty much every every way, but mm -hmm. you're there serving them and lead, helping lead worship and singing old gospel songs that kind of stuff, then it never crosses your mind that you would end up that that a human being could be something that would be detestable. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it wasn't until I went to college that I encountered Christians who make you feel bad for being a Christian. Like you meet them and you're like, really? Yeah. Oh, but it, it, I, I think it. I think it was like when I got to college, I felt like what um, Bob Dole felt like last Sunday, where he was just like, um, you know, they asked him on uh, Fox News Sunday Show, like, you know, what do you think about the Republican Party? Could you even get elected these days? He's like, I couldn't. Nixon couldn't, Reagan couldn't. <laughs> I think Republicans should close up shop until next year and put a uh, under construction sign out front and try to come up with some real ideas that could do some good in the world. And, you know, I know a ton of friends my age that had that experience real early on, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't. So I, I'm really grateful for growing up that way. Um, so by the time I felt like Bob Dole, where I was like, what team am I on? <laughs> what is going on here? This is Team Jesus. Uh, when I had those ideas, um, I already had a kind of um, uh, a confidence about the good and beautiful things that can happen in Christian community, mm -hmm. and I also had um, uh, developed a, a very kind of vibrant spiritual life. Um, I, I haven't had those real existential uh, times where I was, you know, I didn't know if I had a spiritual connection to God. I've had periods in college of like complete academic doubt, but the sensibility of the sacred was not something that disappeared. That's interesting. Uh, what 
what uh, denomination were, were were your parents pastors of? Did you say did you say Baptist? Yeah, yeah. So they were so southern. They were Southern Baptists, and then that got ended. Okay. Because um, you know the Southern Baptists kept getting more and more conservative. Right. Uh, and you know it used to be Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I was conceived, had a process theologian teaching at it, and um, a William Poteet who helped start it was the first. Uh, Christian school in the United States to teach evolution as the way God uh, huh. created the world. Um, with the first commentary published in America that um, denied six-day creation, uh, questioned um, the plain reading of scripture. Like There was a time that Southern Baptists were like the nerds of Southern religion. Um, and then we got hijacked. So as the hijacking took place, eventually we were, we've moved on. Um, okay. So uh, you know, now I work at a UCC church, and I've worked at a Disciples of Christ church, and my wife, who's also ordained, um, was ordained at an Alliance of Baptist church, which is like the peace, gay-loving Baptist. Um, so I imagine that's where you'd be yeah. most at, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting because I never, I mean, you all you hear right now is people just, you know, bashing the religious right, you know, and they're always bringing up evangelicals, Southern Baptists, is always in the mix. So when you said originally said Baptist, I was like, huh, that's interesting. So I'll have to check that out. Well, you know, on, one of on... the cool things is that uh, um, with the immigration issue right now, you have focus on the family, uh, sojourners, and the Southern Baptists all supporting comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now, we actually have, is one of the first times that the so-called religious right and left uh, are cooperating on something that, you know, if you've ever read the Bible, God is a real big fan of how, of treating those who don't belong in your land as if they were the firstborn. It's really, it's really uh, the subversive idea of, of loving your neighbor, even mm-hmm. if they, they're illegally. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited just because all of a sudden these people that I have not had relationships with that are positive, you know, like on Facebook, right? Uh, my uh, more conservative Baptist friends, all of a sudden, uh, there's something we all agree on. That's it's cool. Like, hey, this is out of the Bible. <laughs> Finally. So, yeah. so, so, Joey, do you have any questions up uh, right now? Do you, are you good? Or? Well, yeah, just like right there, you know, what do you think is changing culturally to be able to bring people together like this when they weren't before, you know? Well, I, what, do you, I, what do you see so, happen? Yeah. A couple weeks ago when I talked with um, Jim Wallace on the podcast, and in, in his new book he tells the story about how all these people got on the same page. But, um, uh, he said, well, everyone was getting, well, everyone was converted to their Bible, right? Like, when it goes to immigration, there's not ambiguity there. It's not like you're right. talking about uh, gay marriage or environmental justice or something like that. This right. is, uh, you were once in exile, and if you want to be my people, then treat those in exile and the resident aliens among you as your firstborn. Signed, God. Right? Like, the prophets are pretty clear, and uh, you know you can't like run around saying take the Bible literally, uh-huh. and then it gets to an issue where there's forty million verses all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and um, and you're like, well, you know, we're not going to do that. And, and and I really think the other part of it is is you got to know people, right? Like at this point, it's really hard for uh, people to talk about the immigration and not have names attached to it, right? So one of the, uh, there's a family that I'm friends with, 
who the um, mom and their kid, of course, are, are citizens. Husband isn't. Um, and yet, uh, if he wanted to go through the process, right, to become a citizen, he would have to leave, get mm -hmm. in the back of the line, and when he gets back in, his kid, who's not in kindergarten yet, will likely be in middle school or high school. And so, like, when you know their story, you can't think that God's on the side of separating a family. And, that like, you can't be pro-family and want the dad to disappear from the kid's life when all he was doing is falling in love, trying to feed his sister on the other side of a border. Right? Like, these borders are kind of arguments. Um, and what makes people cross them is that uh, it, it isn't because they're like, oh, you know, like, let's you know, screw America's sovereignty. No, they're obeying the laws of the free market, mm -hmm. which at this point, I think most people get it, even if they don't admit it when they're in the voting booth, is that uh, the, the law of the market at this point is much more powerful than the law of any nation state. And uh, so immigration is one of those issues where uh, the 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 faces that get attached to the story, um, all of a sudden, you know, those Bible passages aren't something from the ancient Near East. It's your neighbor who you're mm -hmm. friends with, and you're like, no, we can do better than breaking up a family. And no one, no one, no one is suggesting, oh, let's you know, let's just let drug dealers run around. Like that's really just not the. That's only when you don't know the face to it. Yeah, is that what you're thinking of? But once you do, you're like. Yeah, we got to come up with a good reason, and so you know, I'm I'm excited about uh, you know being proud to be an American someday in the summer, hopefully when <laughs> Obama signs something. So <laughs> it, it happens every once in a while. <laughs> well, that's cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like if if you put aside all your kind of um, I don't know, I guess all, all the walls that a lot of religious people can put up, denominations and stuff, you put that aside and just see people as people and, and interact and have conversations, even, you know, even arguments. But uh, I feel like we can stand on the same footing. A lot more people, you know, will uh, will be on the same page as opposed to opposite, you know, opposite sides of things. So, so let's get back to, so you, um, you, you're in college. Did you go to like a, like a state college or anything like that and then decide to go into seminary or what was your uh, kind of, journey into you know going more in like a theology education well so i was in uh school like middle school and high school i went to arts magnet program so i basically did like theater and stuff and was in a band and that kind of thing so when i went to college i was mostly going to college uh because that's what you did next per se yeah um and uh and then and my dad early on like when we would have our kind of deep conversations about religion and politics and stuff he would he would hear it and then go that's a great question and he would just give me a book and be like let's talk about it after this because i'm not doing your thinking for you so i had gotten to the point of just really liking reading like um in high school i had a i, I had a group of guys we all read a bunch of dietrich bonhoeffer together paul Tillich, kierkegaard that kind of thing and i just enjoyed kind of the theological and philosophical journey it was fun mm -hmm. so i i went to a um, a, a small private school, uh, Campbell University, um, outside of Raleigh, and uh, and I was a musical theater and philosophy major. Um, oh. I mean, I quit the philosophy. I mean, I quit the musical theater one when I realized that I didn't want to go to school for five years, and I didn't 
need two degrees that you don't get employed having. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that was always, that was just where I ended up. And, you know, there I was, like, the worship leader for the one of the big student groups and that kind of thing. And um, I was in a band. We were edgy because we had our secular show and our religious one. But yeah, I mean, it was great. And so there, I, I, I just, just took all the philosophy classes, yeah. finished all of the upper level religion classes pretty um, early on. So they let me start taking um, uh, every year's senior seminar for the religion and philosophy program uh, senior seminar. I took like three semesters of it, and then I went and uh, started taking a bunch of the seminary um, theology classes uh, because. That's just what I wanted to use my electives on. So, yeah. um, by the time I got out of undergrad, um, my wife and I we were both married. By then, we're both to each other, not. <laughs> and we went to Wake Forest University's Divinity School, which is like the, I mean, it's a, it was the first ecumenical divinity school. It's at Wake Forest University, which is a Baptist one, and uh, a Baptist historically a Baptist university. Uh, so it's a, it was an ecumenical school, but it's much more kind of progressive Protestant mm -hmm. uh, divinity school. And from there, we, you know, we were in Winston-Salem. Then I worked at a church, started the podcast. Nice. Got it home brewing. And that um, kind of so you've always kind of just been along the lines of more of a process theology, just kind of just that's just always kind of been your, 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 your leanings, right? Well, Based well, on my family are like, uh, so my dad and grew up in uh military mm -hmm. so like there you're just protestant right like on an air force base you go to protestant chapel yeah um, he was a kind of like jonathan edward style calvinist until well, it was like the first argument i won with him <laughs> was not being a calvinist now he is a uh, you know a open evolutionary panentheist like all cool people are and um so uh so I, I, that's what I was, and my, uh, and I, you know, I was like a guy that read Spurgeon sermons, for like just to have quotes to like out Calvin those, arguments, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So my my theology really changed in college, uh, early on when I kind of took the kind of scientific and more kind of historical style critical thought seriously. Um. I had all kinds of doubts about, you know, biblical scholarship and that kind of thing that got to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say like my sophomore year, like when I, when I would go to church, I was feeling like, uh, Marcus Borg and Paul Tillich were kind of where I was. And, um, but now in that whole period of doubt, like, I don't know if God exists kind of questions and stuff. It, my piety didn't really leave. So, mm -hmm. and, and like, I, I still like creating art and I still liked, uh, um, serving others with my community groups and activism with the faith groups and all that kind of stuff. And I still did contemplative prayer and journaling and everything that a kind of, I don't know, someone who's a lot more confident in God would do. But, uh, like I just didn't. I didn't have days I woke up ungrateful for being alive and uh -huh. thought I was responding in some way to something more ultimate than me. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean I couldn't sit there and give myself good reasons like, 
well, you know that according to evolutionary psychology, like I could play it out in my head, it just seemed unreal, right? Like, like uh, you can explain something with a different discourse, science, history, and, and all the different ways in between, um, which I really enjoy doing. I've just never had a point where those explanations and different kind of discourses of knowledge explained away the phenomena to being something purely imminent, with the mm -hmm. religious phenomena, to being something purely imminent, that the source of my experience of the sacred God and revealed in Jesus and that kind of thing are explained away so that there's no traction in the religious language and experience to something ultimate. So I've never had that, but I, but like I understand why plenty of people would see that as reasonable <laughs> and and i have found that uh sometimes when teaching and not in a religious context that uh i'm actually pretty good at convincing people uh that they're that that is more persuadable than my own stance which i'm, I'm not sure what that means but um <laughs> so uh, like i'm in college and as as i'm sitting there wrestling with all these questions we get a new philosophy professor, and it's I second semester junior year. Same time in my personal life, my grandmother had just died tragically of cancer. Um, like the kind, the slow, painful you watch kind. Mm. Like give them ice and sing them hymns if you don't know they're hearing that kind of thing. And she'd gone in a research program at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and I would I took a class at UNC Chapel Hill Duke this religion class called the parting of the ways how Christianity and Judaism became distinct religions um, with a with a very famous first-century uh, scholar there um, um, Bart Ehrman said he was his best teacher Etten is his last name and uh, uh, he was a rabbi a very progressive rabbi and uh, um, first-century historian genius best teacher I've ever seen in a classroom with normal people. Right? Like he had normal people take his class and graduate students and he just made these old texts live. And so I took this class so that I could go see my grandma um in this cancer research situation up uh so I drive about an hour and a half. Well um it's get uh, the the last treatment happened um and uh there's an ice storm, you know like when icy rain in North Carolina is one of those things you just avoid. Yeah. And I decided not to go up to class at night because they had called and said, hey, look, we're, we're so excited the cancer's gone. Uh, once her immune system's up, she'll be able to leave the hospital. And I'm all excited, talked to my grandma on the phone. And um, uh, then three or four in the morning, I get a call saying she got pneumonia and died. Hmm. Um, well, at that point, if Calvin was right, God's an asshole. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm just like, really, dude? Okay, one, you could ordain my wheels to stay straight on the ice, and I could have looked my grandma in the face and told her I loved her, and I didn't. And so you're a jerk. Right? Like, I had that experience, and then, um, like a week later, this new, hadn't finished his dissertation philosophy professor. He's actually been on the podcast, Adam English. Okay. Uh, he and I have become friends since then, but like, there was a year that I thought he was the worst thing that ever happened, right? Like, and, and this is why we're sitting there, and it's like a philosophy of religion class. I'm so excited about it, and I'm like, I'm the smart philosophy of religion guy at this school, and blah 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 blah. And we're reading Aquinas, and this night before we had just read the whole explanation of omnipotence, and uh, 
and, and you know, in omnipotence and theology is like the the affirmation that um, God's perfection requires that uh, that um, uh, that God either was the actor in every event, or um, uh, you know, some people get around and say that God permitted it. But either way, whatever happened was either determined or permitted by God, mm-hmm. right? Like that, it could have been otherwise. Should God have chosen to? And I just find this is just completely. I'm just pissed, right? Because in my mind, I'm thinking like, no, no, no. I have one good example. You know, like you're like Job, and you're just like shaking your <laughs> fist at God, going, "Oh no, 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 no! We we don't have to go into this other thing. I got one clear example." And then all of a sudden, you start thinking of other things in your frustration and anger like whoa well you know the holocaust isn't a bad example about this one either have you thought about that one you know and i'm like sitting there asking these questions and and he goes uh trip um this is an important question in philosophy of religion it's called the odyssey and here is how the christian tradition handles it oh and you remember he's like six years older than me i don't know like i felt like and i felt like we're not that far apart i'm an really arrogant. I'm like, I'm smarter than you and I could beat you up. And you're <laughs> telling me that God killed my grandma. So, screw you. Like, that's what's going on in my head. He yeah. has no And he puts up on the board like, you know, God is uh, omnibenevolent. Like, all-loving good. A God is all-powerful. Or omnipotent. Um, um, there is evil. You know, like a math problem. Therefore, God does not exist. And he said, trip you believe right now that there are, there's genuine evil in the world and that you're willing to sacrifice the omnipotence of God to preserve the goodness of God and the reality of evil. But the Christian tradition recognized that there is no, there, there's no genuine evil in the world and that from God's perspective, um, God not only determined it, but determined it good. And that you should mark off there is evil. So you preserve both the existence of God, God's power, and God's goodness. And I said, well, that's interesting. But uh, uh, if that's true, then God's a jerk. And God's not as nice as Jesus, so it's clearly not Christian. And I don't know where he got these ideas. Talking about Aquinas and Augustine at this point. uh, But it's wrong. And he said... uh, uh, you're sounding like a process philosopher. It's a it's a pseudo Christian philosophy that's not compatible with the historic Christian tradition. And I got up out of class, went to the library, typed in process philosophy, and one of the book titles was by Charles Hartshorn, Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. And I was like, Ha! Yes, that is right. And so I got that book, read it, and uh, went back into class. And ever since then, um, process philosophy and theology has been one of the things that dialogued in my mind because my thought was God has to at least be as nice as Jesus if um, if if you're going to be a Christian um, so that was kind of where I got turned on to uh, process thought mm-hmm. um, and and uh, later on when I got around the reading Whitehead I'm going to do a dramatic reading for you of Whitehead <laughs> uh, some of us copies annotated nearby um, but you know so for Aristotle who Aquinas is appropriating he calls God the unmoved mover and so God is you know the the agent of movement in the world 
but is unmoved. To feel empathy or pain or any of that would be less than God, because then God would change. And change implies fluctuation. And where does God fluctuate or change to? Something better or worse? See, if God's perfect, there could be no change, because there could be nothing better to change to, and God couldn't change to the worse. Or that would be, by definition, not God. This is kind of how it all played out. Mm -hmm. And Whitehead, at the end of a process in reality, um, a, a book you should never read on your own, I'm just I'm, I'm just not suggesting it. <laughs> just the last chapter, chapter two and section five, God in the world. Read that. Uh, the rest of the time, wait till you're with friends that already know what's going on. Um, so he, he, this is what he says: the notion of God as the unmoved mover is derived from Aristotle, at least as far in Western thought is concerned. This notion of God as eminently real is a favorite Christian doctrine. The combination of the two into the doctrine of an aboriginal, eminently real, transcendent creator who, at whose fiat the world came into being and, at, and whose imposed will it always obeys, is the fallacy which has infused tragedy into the history of the monotheistic traditions. When the Western world accepted Christianity, Caesar conquered and received the texts of Western theology, which were then edited by Caesar's lawyers. The Code of Justinian and the Theology of Justinian are two brief volumes explaining one movement of the human spirit. However, this brief Galilean vision of humility has flickered throughout the ages, uncertainly. In the official, uh, official formulation of the religion, it has assumed the trivial form of the mere attribution to the Jews that they cherished a misconception about their Messiah, but the deeper idolatry of the fashioning of God in the image of the Egyptian, the Persian, the Pharaoh, the Roman imperial rulers was retained. The church gave unto God the attributes which belonged exclusively to Caesar. Hmm. And then uh, and, and then he goes on and says some philosophy stuff, and then it ends by this, and he says, There is, however, in the Galilean origin of Christianity, yet another suggestion, which does not fit very well with the main strains of philosophical and religious and moral thought. It does not emphasize the ruling Caesar. It does not emphasize a ruthless moralist or some philosophical concept of the unmoved mover, no, it dwells on the tender elements in the world, which slowly and in its quietness operate by love, and it finds purpose in the present immediacy of a kingdom not of this world. Love neither rules, nor is love unmoved. Also, love's a bit oblivious as to morals. It does not look to the future, it finds its own reward, in the immediate present, hmm. and so I mean, and so there you kind of see um, these kind of initial insights to Whitehead, who mm -hmm. wants to rethink philosophy in the image of love and power and relational dynamism that um, he saw in the life and ministry of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, let's take a, a musical break. Then we're going to come out and we'll unpack some process theology. Sound good? Yeah, well, it's your show. You cool. tell me. I'm not an <laughs> uh, We're going to take a break and do, uh, I got a couple Deep Elm bands I've been wanting to play. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and take a little break. This is Dorena 
with the song Young Hearts of Summer. You're listening to the AXPX Podcast.
from their album Nuet. That is Dorina with the song Young Hearts of Summer. You can grab that on, uh, go to deepelmdigital.com. You can find that uh, there for uh, fairly cheap. They keep their prices cheap there. Um, so, so good stuff. All right, well, we are talking with Trip Fuller. He is the host of Homebrewed Theology podcast and also Theology Nerd Throwdown. And uh, we are talking process theology. We got a little bit of taste of it before the break here. And uh, Joe, you uh, when I when I told you we were going to be having a trip on, you kind of did a crash course in process theology. What did you find out? And then we can see if uh, we'll see if what you found out uh, matches up with uh, what you know trips expertise. <laughs> yeah, that way I agree. <laughs> so basically, I'm being tested. Great, I'm a terrible <laughs> test. No, man. Um, just, just what have you been like? What have you been reading? And what's your understanding because uh, of it because uh, I mean to me it's I, I kind of get it but I haven't really been able to, to dive in but you had some time to to dive in and read about it well like everything man you know it's like an onion you keep on pulling layers yeah. off another you know you only can skim the surface with just going what you google and and what you can can I can't <laughs> even you know some of the stuff that you know that Tris been talking about some of the books and stuff I've have seen on people's list and I haven't had a chance to even dive into yet but um the word process, I mean, it's pretty evident of what it is. You know, we're all in process. Everything is is moving. Everything is always in the moment. You know, nothing's really stagnant. Um, so when I see this theology, is that what we think is that you know, is God is is God is 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 in is in us and with us at all time. It's not like we're separated or some kind of there's this this barrier that God is like. Uh, there's a there's a trip you can help me out with this it's they use these words like not in the world but of the world you know uh with god how he how he interacts with each of us individually um and that's where i got with process theology that you know if if things can always change culturally you know things can always how we interpret the scriptures interpret what's going on in the world um it has to change because we as people change. You know, we're going to see the world differently than people in 2,000 years ago. I mean, it's just a given thing. We look at stuff in the Bible, and, and there's a lot of stuff, you know, we've had podcasts ago. You always hear a lot of, especially like, you know, the thinking atheists and all these other atheist podcasts, they always attack a certain kind of Christianity. It's mm -hmm. this fundamentalist kind of mindset of Christianity that it's lit, everything's literally true. And exactly happened like this historically, and you know there was a real Adam and Eve, and this is everything was you know exactly like that. And I think with process theology, it's a little more. Let's really evaluate it. Um, what are we really saying here? Yeah, let's let's take those those fundamentalist kind of views and really detract. You know, use historical knowledge, use scientific knowledge, and really let's educate ourselves and see really is. Where is God in all of this then? If we if we have that kind of mindset of this hijacked kind of Christianity that fundamentalists have kind of taken over, then what what does that mean for us? Do we really want to worship a God like that, or should we? You know, so that's kind of the basis. Of what I've I've kind of skimmed the surface to it, but I'm sure Trip can articulate it and say it a lot better than I can. So, so Trip, yeah. for, no, for, I, I, yeah, that, I I get that, and I think one of the important things to point out is that for a lot of of uh, I don't want you, extremist versions of anything, mm -hmm. religion or atheism or any of that. Um, they actually, I think, are are fighting with the same shared assumptions, which are kind of um, the ones, the metaphysical assumptions of modernity. And right. so, uh, 
uh, I, I mean, I don't know if y'all looked at the whole thing we did with uh, Daniel Dennett and that kind of thing. We're, uh, but uh, even there, it, 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 for a lot of kind of atheist philosophers um, who are using science, they don't question their metaphysical assumptions um, that, you, you know, you can't do, you do metaphysics coming out of science the best you know, but um, those metaphysical assumptions are a priori you take to engage uh, the data and make sense of it. And in modernity, there were um, a couple big ones, right? Like the mind-body dualism of Descartes. Uh, Hume um, did was an advocate of what's called sensationalism, and that's that, you know, um, we only know what we can through our senses, like the sense organs. Um, and then with Newton, you get a type of deterministic materialism where um, the explanation of stuff comes from matter, you know, substances, substances hitting each other and determining what happens. And so then if you start to see everything as at its base, matter that hits stuff and moves, then you can draw a line back to the first, you know, encounter of matter. So it's kind of determined from the first hit. And then, you know, there's this big, there is a fanciful, fantastical story about uh, uh, an argument with a, with a, with a scientist and, um, who said, well, if, you know, if I just knew the equations and the order of things at the Big Bang, then I could tell you everything that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and process philosophy is one philosophy that's seeking to make sense of uh, the world as we know it now. Like, no longer do we really want to separate the mind and body. No longer will we call uh, humans like a machine just like the rest of nature that has a mind stuck in it. Um, no longer do we think the only data we have are senses, right? Like, we know there's more go information and connectedness between us than what our senses detect. In fact, most of our relatedness we aren't even conscious of. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of this comes out of the quantum physics and relativity theory, which was going on right as um, uh, Whitehead started to switch from being a philosopher, a, a mathematician and scientist, to being a philosopher. And then when, you, when at the base of reality there's not matter in motion hitting things, right? All of a sudden with quantum physics there's a whole other layer beneath that. Right. And um, which kind of opens up the world from being this primarily substances to uh, energy events, like mass energy events. Um, and these mass energy events are uh, not determined. They're they're actually uh, spectrums of openness, and um, and and they're actually connected even when you can't see them or sense other things, right? Like they did that experiment where they took um, a, a uh, uh, took two different electrons, right? And you hit one, and it and it triggers at the very same time a thousand miles away. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, they're not. How are they connected? Well, they are connected. And now we actually are trying to sit around going, like, we're quantumly entangled. What is most real about the world, when we talk about what's really real, we use math, and then we do weird metaphors that tell our assumptions, right, of us being persons and matter that touch and control things. Then underneath, there's what's more real is this, uh, uh, this world of interconnected, interdependent energy events. And so um, the uh, original word that Whitehead used wasn't process. It was, or he wanted to develop an organic philosophy. Hmm. Because organisms 
are, you know, a series, every organism contains kind of like a bunch more little societies of organisms, and they grow together with a whole bunch of other ones, right? So, you know, we have our kind of centered of ourself, like in our consciousness, but then if you could break it down, like there are organ systems, in each organ system are a whole uh, series of chemical reactions that are functioning with um, uh, uh, different cells, and then each cell has a series of atoms in it, and, and atoms are a generalization about, you know, certain assumptions that we make about the way uh, uh, physics and physical matter develop all the way down to, um, uh, we know that it's somewhere there are these quantum events taking place that are organized in a, um, uh, in a series of connections that are interdependent to make us. Mm -hmm. And we, of course, no, we, we learn that, right? When you have a heart attack, all of a sudden, you realize how interdependent all those systems are. Um, and that's not just true about us. It's also true about um, us related to our environment and everything. So process philosophy, what, what Whitehead was getting at is, like, let's, let's try to rethink through the big picture based off the science we know today, but also um, in a way that um, doesn't think the main topic are individuals who are in motion and touching. Let's 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 dig deeper. Let's unearth an image. Some let's start making our metaphysical assumptions and insights from that that cohere with what we know to really be the case, right? In mm -hmm. quantum physics and relativity. So, that kind of thing. so do you do you feel like like process theology kind of uh, fills all the gaps that science gives us or religion gives us? Kind of fills the gaps in the unknowns with God. Is it is it that kind of theology? And it's always kind of growing and changing with more knowledge or theories that may come our way. Does uh, that sound about no? Like, you know? I would say it's not a God of the gaps. Okay. So, so God of the gaps works uh, uh, this way in the sense that um, uh, for a long time, right, our fundamentalists and our um, kind of uh, same philosophical assumptions, right, that modernity had. But fundamentalist atheists or are, are kind of liberal retreatist theological types, they all take the same worldview, and then they take uh, their arguments are uh -huh. either how liberals will like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we now understand that how that's determined scientifically, so God's not involved in that. Because for God to be involved when God and the world are separate from each other, then God has to show up and get there. Um, so it got to the point that liberal theologians after Kant, um, uh, basically gave up divine action and all this other kind of stuff, and religion became ethics, um, and some type of judgment in the afterlife, maybe. Uh, or God became what what motivates humans to do what they are supposed to do. And liberal theology, in a sense, is doing God of the gaps. Mm -hmm. And you could hear them say, like, oh, and yet, you know, what was before the bang? Right? And all that is saying is, when you understand the world, we understand the world as inherently apart from God. And for God to be real, there has to be a place other than the world for God to be. Okay. And, um, and the more we knew about science, the more um, gaps got filled in, the less space for God. Fundamentalists are more, more, are more um, conservative, not in, uh, they're, they're more realistic. They're like, no, if you need a real God, God has to really be real and really be here. And so they do like weird tricks, right, with science. Yeah. Um, to kind of prove how God's really real and, and, you know, like, well, if you carbon date a live mollusk, it says the world is this many thousand years old, and um, it's just as true that Satan, and the, you know, <laughs> made the dinosaur bones look this way as if they really existed. And you're like, uh, okay, great. Um, and so, so 
process philosophy, and there are others. Um, Thomists actually do a better job than most Protestants do um, of recognizing that um, the assumption that God and the world are separate is a problem. Because then, um, one, right, like that's not true. Like if you read the Bible, right, like no, no one has to figure out how to get God to show up. Um, God, God was always involved in the world, mm -hmm. and yet God wasn't determining the world because how does God create? It says it, God creates kind of the, uh, even in the six days, eventually it gets to let the earth bring forth ground. So there's always this co-creative activity. God's creative activity is something that's imparted to creation so that God's co-creating with creation. Like the earth gives forth life, and, and life is told, part of our duty is to continue creating life, and right. part of the human uh, vocation is to care and tend for to the diversity of life, mm -hmm. and to know the diversity, right? Name it, um, and 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 so the process. People are like, look, this God was always present and active and co-creating with us. So let's not assume modernity is right and that only one substance can occupy a space at the same time. See, when you get rid of substances for events, then there is no problem to say uh, God and the world were in the same place at the same time, or that. Um, that the forgiveness you gave me after I betrayed you is both an act of you and an act of God, or you know, I mean, there's so many of these other type of things. And and then process people love quoting Paul. They're like, yes, and Paul's right. That's why he said that um, that God is where we live, move, and have our being. Um, you know, that's Paul's quote when mm -hmm. he's up hanging out with the philosophers in Athens. Um, but 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 the point is that. The, the whole God of the gaps is trying to fit God in to a place where God shouldn't be. Okay. And what Whitehead did, starting as a person, um, early on he read all of his dad's uh, theology books and got rid of them. He thought the problem of evil, especially after his kid died in the war, thought God sucks. Um, well, then when he was hanging out with quantum physicists and doing his math, and you know he is he and he um, you know it's like besties with Bertrand Russell. Um, he convinced him one day to agree with him. There's a really funny <laughs> story about that. But um, so he's sitting there, and then he's developing his philosophy in the his first book, Science in the Modern World, where he starts to work out his philosophy. He gets to the end and um, and realizes he needs uh, something in these events that gives possibility to them. What is it that opens up the series of events to something more? Uh, to uh, growth complexity, diversity, all these things that life in in our world, right? Life tends that way. So what is it that does it? And um, and so that's where he at first uh, introduces God into his ideas. Uh, he wasn't like sitting there going, let me come up with a philosophy so I can figure out how to have God. Um, God was the one that brought uh, the gift of possibility to each moment of the coming. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, I say that just to go, like, a process person doesn't sit around going, how can we get God in the world? Okay. They tend to explain the world and think um, that at least in science and philosophy, it makes more sense of what we know of the world if there is uh, an ultimate actuality that uh, participates in, in, in the world. And there's lots of science reasons for that and stuff that usually bores people, because <laughs> um, I found Christians... Um, tend to respond more to process philosophy and theology when it when they know it does science and that kind of stuff. But they also go, yeah, actually, that seems to make more sense when when I read scripture about this living and life-giving God in it, but it also makes more sense of my 
religious life, and it also starts to give a better account of all these questions, like yeah. the problem of evil, religious pluralism. Um, how can we understand um, uh, the person of Jesus when we have these weird creeds about fully human and fully divine? And uh, that um, the process theology, unlike process philosophy, I found in in just talking to people, they go, oh, yeah, well, that's kind of what I was thinking, but that makes sense. I didn't know you could think that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, yeah. And so I, I just, but I just wouldn't want people to think that the the that what process philosophers do, or sit around and try to find holes for God. That's, okay. Um, I know some of them that gave up on God actually, and you should interview him. Robert C. Mesley um, wrote the best introduction to process theology. Gets done with the whole thing, and the last chapter is called a process naturalism. And and he just introduced a whole theology about God mm -hmm. better than people that believe it would. And then the end he goes, but I don't think it needs God. <laughs> um, and then after it, he asked John Cobb to respond why he's wrong. See, that's how process people are. Okay. They, they're so unworried, right? Like, they aren't trying to fit God in holes, so they aren't trying to defend a hole to keep God in. They're trying to give an account of the world and existence and reality, and God becomes part of that account. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, when you switch to theology, then it is... Obviously, you're taking some type of faith stance at that point. Well, yeah, I think that's the thing, like, theology kind of throws some people off because I think in a lot of, like, say, like a Calvinist theology or something like that, it's kind of, uh, everything kind of revolves around that theology and it's 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 done, you know what I mean? Everyone kind of goes back to those theologians and, and what do they have to say and we're going to revolve our, our said denomination around this. Process theology seems to be a lot more open to I guess interpretation and change throughout yeah. throughout the years and, and conversations. Yeah, and and you you could sit around thirty process inspired people and get different answers. Right. And, yeah. Um, you know, some of them don't like counting me because they think I I am like too conservative. Um, <laughs> and 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 you know, for some of them, if you don't think that the government planned nine eleven, they don't let you count. So, <laughs> okay. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> It, that was a you know I was a joke for all the liberal cows. <laughs> Joey, do you have any uh, any uh, do, have you prepared any questions, Joey? Or no, I, I he brought up theodicy earlier, you know, and he also brought up Bart Ehrman, and I've read his book. Actually, that's what started with me about trying to figure out what the hell Christianity was, or that I actually didn't know anything about his historical roots or anything, <laughs> as just you know a church going Christian, you know. Uh, but what I was first exposed to Bart Ehrman wasn't really like Jesus Interrupted or Misquoting Jesus or any of those other books. It was actually his his book on reason why he's no longer a Christian called God's Problem. Yeah, yeah. How the, how the Bible fails to answer our most important question, why we suffer. And using process the theology, you know, I actually subscribe to Bart Ehrman's blog and stuff. And, you know, and he's, he's very insightful. And it, it's really nice to have, be able to have someone that accessible to have a dialogue with. And especially listen to him, he works out his thoughts when he's writing a new book. Even his scholarly works, he'll throw it at us, and we get to input and give him his thoughts. Like, hey, this is too confusing, or um, if he's trying to hit a book for a layman person. But his book, uh, God's Problem, you know, how? I mean, have you read that book? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and, you know, well, he was on the podcast about it. I mean, he's been on oh, the podcast, okay. I don't know, two or three times. Yeah, we were when I was in North Carolina. Um, I got to hang out with him. Um, you know, he hangs out at Armadillo Grill, right? At Chapel Hill a lot. So if you're ever around, just you just go in there. Yeah. <laughs> and he likes the great papers of the 
for the beverage and their delicious pico de gallo. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I think um, I, I actually really like the book. Uh, yeah. And, and I thought he did a, a really good job of of pointing out um, just how big the problem of evil is. Right. Um, so, uh, and and I I liked him giving a hard time to answers that uh, you know, like we t- discussed earlier, that end up just saying there is no such thing as genuine evil. And but I don't want to give the the tradition such a hard time in the, in one sense, right? That um, before. Uh, a certain type of standard of living arrived, right? Like Jesus was old when he started his ministry in the first century. Right. 30, he didn't live that long. Lots of babies died. The world was uh, much more uh, um, uh, violent. Yeah, it was a harsh right? place. So a lot of, and, and you didn't have this giant 20th century awareness that we all have now of just how creative human beings are at raising our standard of living, being able to feed the entire world, and yet going on mass genocide campaigns we call world wars, and coming up with creative reasons to slaughter masses of people and ethnic genocide and all this other kind of stuff. Drop nukes on people for peace. Um, so, the, the, the problem of evil after the Holocaust, and after World War II, um, and, I, I, and after human beings are just so aware of more of our history, I think intensifies. So when they when when there is no the answer of there is no genuine evil, to me makes a little bit more sense when death is something you're really familiar with, and uh, and and but the goodness and nearness of God isn't something you're inherently suspicious of, that like we are now um, after the masters of suspicion have. You know, like, and at this point, Freud and Nietzsche and Marx live in everyone's head, whether they want them to or not. Right. Um, and so the the I I, I really like um, a Bart's honesty about it because he more or less says, you know, like I went to school wanting to defend um, a certain understanding of biblical uh, authority, and it got deconstructed. Um, and when it does. Uh, then the problem of evil deconstructs even what the notion of God I came in with. And Princeton tend to be a bunch of reformed people and Bardians and, and like where he went. Um, so the, there, there's something really honest about that. And uh, my favorite part of one of the interviews was when he talked about going to uh, midnight mass with his wife. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that's, I mean, he's told the story and it's such a beautiful one because there, there's a sense in which the kind of the, uh, the, the aesthetic of the gospel, the church, and the story pulls us versus this truth demands a response. And one of the things I like about process theology is it takes those insights out of Whitehead and actually goes, yes, beauty is to be prioritized. Uh, beauty is what evokes and stirs the infinite and sacred in us. Um, we don't want truths that demand or coerce you into you know, agreeing with us or assenting to our authority. Um, uh, God, and this is a whitehead title, God is the poet of the world. And I think that's such a beautiful image that um, that there is something infinite going on in the world. One time, Whitehead, um, there's a really fun book if you aren't into process philosophy but just want to hear what a what it's like to hang out with, like, a guy who became a mathematician and a philosopher and just knows way too much. <laughs> Near the end of his life, um, 
he was he had gone to Harvard when he left Cambridge because um, he wanted to teach philosophy and he wasn't trained as a philosopher and then he gave you know wrote a bunch of books um, and there Lucen Price who was a grad student um, recorded a bunch of Whitehead's uh, weekly soirees with like famous professors and grad students that are going through Harvard and it's called Dialogues of Alfred North Whitehead and you hear him like you know give commentary on books orchestras they debate religion and politics or whatever and 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 some of the discussions that come up about religion are fascinating uh, and, and in it one time he says this uh, um, there's a, a discussion about um, how oh, how historical criticism early on out of the humanist tradition led to critical thinking about scripture um, and Whitehead goes well I find the literary uh, literary appreciation of scripture much more helpful than some idea of this perfect historical force. Um, he said, the Bible excels in its suggestion of infinitude. Then Whitehead suddenly stood and spoke with passionate intensity. Here we are, with our, our finite beings and physical senses in the presence of a universe whose possibilities are infinite, and even though we may not apprehend them, those infinite possibilities are actualities. He remained standing for a moment, absorbed in his own thought, then reseating himself, he continued. The trouble with the Bible has been its interpreters, who have sealed and whittled down that sense of the infinitude into finite and limited concepts. And its worst interpreter <laughs> was Paul. <laughs> he didn't like Paul very much. But, um, but, but in there, and he describes why he likes certain worship services better than others, even though he doesn't believe half of what they're talking about as ones that begin and end in art because it's evoking from us something right that language or mm -hmm. truths or force don't and he's not saying that because that's less true and liberal wishy-washy he's saying no stop thinking that only things that are being communicated are ideas in our heads with words if you want to know a god that's where we live move and have our being and in coming to every moment in context and trying to lure trying to evoke trying to bring greater beauty, truth, zesty adventure goodness into the world, then recede everything that's there. Don't limit the religious experience to words mm -hmm. and ideas. What's going on in the tradition is this this infinite reality is evoking from us. And that is the truth. That you're not eliminating it. You're you're opening yourself up to what was getting itself done in in these stories, in these histories, in these traditions when you are open to something bigger than the words and the details and what sits on the surface of your religion. Right. Um, but I, I think that um, process theologians, that uh, that's inspirational, and that's why you aren't going to get them um, to generally, you know, like, there are ideas we can't stand, right? Like, like ones that make, that defame the character of God, but it's not like you're going to get um, to a place where, um, you you're like well this one text uh, and you see there were five uh, thousand people that got fed and that's really problematic to me but if you look at the feeding it shows up twice in Matthew but in once in all three other gospels but in different places so then we don't really know if he did it in what order he did it and how many times he did it and why is it only men get reported as who got fed and that makes me think this text is uh, sexist and you know and you start doing all these critical thoughts and they're all helpful it's just Whitehead's point is but when it gets theological, then this critical eye 
it becomes one of the eyes at which you engage the text. And there's something bigger going on there. And you wouldn't disprove the text by going, well, it couldn't have all happened this way. It would This would be a problem with it scientifically. This would be a problem with that. Um, what is it that's harbored in these texts? What is being evoked out of them? Right. Uh, uh, becomes a, a much more important thing. And so, to me, what Bart Ehrman is one of my favorite people at figuring out with a critical eye what's going on because he's so not as interested in the fights that theologians like to fight. And, and in fact, um, his, uh, his problem over theodicy is, is excellent because then you see he's not trying to get Paul to be a process theologian like I think I could get him to be, <laughs> or, um, or Matthew to be a Calvinist. Like, he's not taking sides anymore in one sense um, uh, because uh, his, his general uh, critique of, of religion in the church is such that he's not using the text to get to a conclusion. Yeah. And so that's why he does Oxford's New Testament book, because he's really good at teaching you that critical eye. I just don't think it's the only eye when we come to the text, or that a critical eye, which is something we developed in modernity with the Enlightenment, is one that turns off a, the eye of faith, the theological mm -hmm. eye, and other ones. Cool. Um, we're going to have to wrap up here. Um, the baby is almost awake, so I need to uh, start wrapping up. <laughs> um, but um, I guess I wanted to... I mean, gosh, there's like... The thing of theology and process theology, there's always so much to unpack and, and talk about. And uh, I'd, I mean, if you're open to it, I'd love to have you on again. I'd love to do kind of a part two and kind of dive in even further. If you're up, to, if you're up for it, one of these days, next few weeks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, you call in on the speak pipe and leave your uh, favorite questions. Then uh... there you go. We should do that. So um, I want to just really quick. Uh, give a plug i think joey you told me this but that uh you and uh, peter rollins are teaming up this month for an yeah, online course at the end of the month um uh we're calling it homebrewed high gravity okay um it, so you know we, we use the beer metaphor high gravity <laughs> beers the uh, ones with a lot of alcohol um so we're going to run a six-week uh reading group um and uh you'll get a, a chapter or an article by a different thinker each week and awesome. uh then you'll sign on and you'll see he and i's beautiful faces um <laughs> And voices, and uh, one of us will do like a 30-minute introduction to the thinker lecture. Then the other one is going to ask the other one questions as we walk through the text, and then we'll spend the second half, you know, all talking uh, with the people that take it. Awesome. Uh, we've got about 140 people signed up, and it'll hold 180. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, it's only 20 bucks, and um, it's a little private group. You'll sign on; it'll be a, a doozy of a time. And our uh, and the idea is that I'll do it with different people each time. And so we're, this time we're doing radical theology. Okay. So cool. you, can, you can expect to get some uh, some uh, Heidegger, some um, mm -hmm. some uh, Zizek, maybe some Caputo, uh, and that kind of thing. So awesome. the, yep. Where uh, where can people find that? Is that on homebrewchristianity.com or is there? A... Yeah, you can go there, and um, if you want to just sign up for that, go to Mission Solutions, like Soul. Mission Solutions, and uh, you can get uh, you can sign up for it there. You can also get we just started this uh, making some little like discussion starter video curriculum type thing, and so there's a new one called Revelation of Darkness, um, and it's two videos each of Peter Rollins, Barry Taylor, and Rob Bell from our uh, like live podcast we did in the brewery with them, and they're like little eight minute discussion starters about faith in the midst of doubt, um, 
uh, doubt, struggle, pain, and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, you know, all the fun things that bring awesome. people to your church to give lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. I'm going to try to sign up for that, uh, on that uh, online course thing. It sounds, uh, sounds awesome. So, um, Trip, man, thank you so much for talking with us today. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. It was kind of last minute. You know, I sent a tweet your way just to make sure, but I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, definitely would love to have uh, you on again. I know that I'm going to go through – I've been taking notes here, so I'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes. And I want to kind of dive in and do some more – some reading and research on my uh, myself. So um, I'd love to have you back in a few weeks here. And uh, just to dive in a bit more, have a part two. So we'll 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 throw that into the works. Um, Joey, did you have anything else uh, to bring up? Or no, it's pretty good, man. Okay, it's a good stopping point for right cool. now. Well, yeah, my, my wife just texted me. Can you bring me some lunch? I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so the baby's waking up, and I'm like, all right, I'm about to have to put on the uh, the, the husband, real life the, the real life hat now <laughs> for the rest of the day. So. Uh, um, Trip, where can people find you online? Oh, uh, homebrewedchristianity.com. Uh, Twitter is at Trip Fuller. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Mission Solutions. Just go to the Homebrewed Christianity store. I think it's homebrewedxty or xnty.com. Okay. Oh, no, just type it in. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, uh, the AXPX. You can also find us at theaxpx.com. And, of course, on Facebook, just search AXPX, and uh, we'll come up and uh, like our page. And then, Joey, um, are you are you giving out your Twitter, or are you, are you keeping up with your, uh, your, your yeah. uh, fast of social media? <laughs> yeah, you can. Just Joey Avalos, man, my name. <laughs> Look, at, so. here's an important question. Now, when your skeptic group starts going well, um, then at some point you need to have us up to the Iron Fist Brewery in Temecula to do a oh. podcast. Oh, um, heck yeah. I, I, I've, I've tasted a couple of their beers at this beer dinner a couple weeks ago, and it was good. And, um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, he's starting a group that drinks and talks. Yes. In Temecula. So you need to start kissing some butt over at that brewery. <laughs> and then um, we'll send them pictures from breweries in LA, and, and then they'll be like, "Well, we want to be like the big city breweries. You're going to talk. You're going to talk about nerdy related, religious type spiritual things. Yeah, and drink. And you're like, yes, and it'd be great. Cool. And then then we can have a a, a a duo podcast right there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Definitely, we'll definitely work that out. Yeah, I'm excited to start it. That starts up this week. Our first, we're meeting at the uh, Crushing Brew in Old Town Temecula, and uh, I got a few people who've you know give the thumbs up that they'll be there. So we'll, hopefully we'll be there. And, you know, if you're listening and you're in the Temecula area or nearby, definitely find us at 7.30 p.m. at the Crush and Brew. Um, and I believe they do actually serve Iron Fist beer there. I think they have a bunch of local uh, beers and wines. So they have – I think we're going to try to be – there's a in there's a room with like a big table and a TV, and I think that's the room I'm going to try to be in. And I'm going to try to get a little little sign thing to kind of put up on the table. So – if you're walking in, you can find us, and uh, definitely, I'll, I'll definitely check out Iron Fist Brewery for sure. So, yeah, we need more. There's a lot of uh, wineries down here. We need some good breweries. So, yeah, I liked all of them except the Imperial Saison. Okay. Not hoppy. It was way too hoppy. Okay. Saison. Good to yeah. know. All right. Well, um, I think that's gonna do it for the show. 
guys, uh, thanks again, Joey and Trip, for being on. And uh, hope you guys enjoyed the show. And next week, I'm still working on Jay Baker. The dude keeps committing and then not emailing back. So I'm going to be persistent. <laughs> Try to get Jay Baker on. And I know... Um, uh, just looking at a lot of, uh, and I think we're going to try to get, um, we're going to try to get Greg Horton on as well in the near future. So Good. talk to him about his story. So, and then I'll, I'll have him tell, uh, tell us where you're, uh, in every instance that you're wrong trip. How's that? <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, this has been the AXP, AXPX podcast. Appreciate all of you for listening. And we'll talk to all of you next week. Peace. Yeah.